Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Ferlin, your Monday host on Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV here in historic Waterbury, Vermont. A little hazy out there this morning. I remember back in my drinking days, every morning was hazy. Uh, That doesn't happen anymore for me, fortunately. Uh, This weekend was uh, a in-the-barn weekend for my daughter and I. We have our 10 fin sheep, and it was uh, time to do their hooves and also give them uh, some shots, some... uh, uh, to help them, you know, their health shots. And normally when we go in the barn, the sheep are, fin sheep are really friendly and they, they come out in greed and they want to, you know, they want to be rubbed on the head and all of that. But for some reason, when they see clippers and they see syringes, they go into a whole survival mode. And so we have to catch them one by one, which means, uh, sort of not tackling football style, but you have to anticipate where they're headed grab them. We put a harness on their head and, and then I kind of flip them over so that my daughter can do the hooves and then I give them an injection, uh, and then let them go. And, uh, so it was, my body is a little bit, uh, shop worn, uh, this morning and, uh, I'm feeling my age a little bit. So we have a great show today. We will be starting, uh, with Meg Reynolds, who's a poet, artist, and teacher has a, a new, very exciting book out. And at 10 o'clock, we'll be talking with Senator Thomas Chittenden. Want to review the, uh, the veto session a little bit with him. And also we're going to talk about the responsibilities of being a legislator in Vermont. There's a lot of, uh, there's 150 House members. There's 30 Senate members. People have careers. They have families. They have lives. And they serve, and uh, we just want to talk about how that how that works in one person's uh, journey of legislative pursuits. Uh, so I want to welcome uh, to the show this morning Meg Reynolds. Uh, welcome to WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. Brad, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be in conversation with you. Well, it's great having you. Uh, I was, you know, looking at your bio and, and all of that and, um, humble beginnings. I remember when, when I was, I don't know, maybe four or five years old, Dr. Seuss books would arrive in the mail even way back then in these little, um, cardboard boxes and they were addressed to me, Brad Furlan, and I it was the most exciting thing to open it up and read a Dr. Seuss book. And it seems like you had a little influence there too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein were a huge part of growing up. Um, I also read these uh, this collection with my mom of poetry for two voices. I um, it, they were poems about things like bees and bugs and dragonflies, and my mother and I would read them back and forth to each other, especially during the like summer breaks. And so I have these really um, peaceful initial memories of my life in poetry. And so it's been a place I've come back to and come back to 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 find that sort of peace. Um, 
and even even when I'm tackling very not peaceful topics, um, I come back to them. So your mother um, was she a poet at all, or a writer? Was was that part of the influence, or she just knew that poetry and and reading were good for children? Um, my mother is an artist. Uh, she's her day job is in, is nursing, and she's wonderful at that. I would say she applies her creativity to that work as well. Um, but she also is an artist of many different genres. She works in needlepoint and watercolor and sculpting and knitting. And so anything that she could get her hands on, she was she was making with um, when I was growing up. So I was ra- around artwork and art materials all the time. And so because of that, she's less a, a written word artist, but she really values words. She loves a good quote. She um, keeps journals of, of quotes and ideas that she loves. And I think her, so it was a combination of her knowing that it was good for me and also her, her genuine interest uh, that she still, still engages today. It's really fun to share my own work with her now after so many years of her influencing me finding my way to words and finding such uh, comfort in them. It's always, uh, I love the whole concept of it's sort of good and evil, but the apple not falling far from the tree. So that, that creative part passed along to you is wonderful. Not always good in, in some family environments. The, you know, the apple wants to r- roll as far away from the tree as it possibly can, but it doesn't sound like that in this case. Uh, no, my parents are my parents are really lovely. My dad is also uh, he did photography my whole growing up life. So his day job was um, he ran an auto body shop with my uncle and grandfather my whole growing up life. But on his on the weekends it was pretty normal for dad to take my brother and I out for hikes and to take pictures. And so both of them and then we were going to art museums and plays and um, and concerts and stuff when I was a kid. So I grew up with around a lot of art and artwork, and and um, and it's something I I came to value in my life a great deal. So yeah, there's a I might be pretty close to the roots uh, in terms of my apple proximity. And what about other influencers um, outside of the home that um, helped you with the journey that you're on? Well, when I was growing up, I remember the uh, poetry unit in my in elementary school and middle school and high school every time we came to poetry it felt like i i found a comfort at school that i sometimes struggled to have it just felt so it was all the, the academic pressures that i felt in other subjects i didn't feel in poetry i felt like there was such a freedom there and then uh, the summer before my senior year of high school, I went to St. Paul's School, which is uh, typically a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, and But during the summer, public school kids go for the summer program and study one academic subject as well as writing. And so I was doing writing and world religions all summer. And it sounds like a survey class, and to some degree it was, but Mostly it was just us and this wonderful teacher, Mr. Spencer, wrestling with the big questions of what it means to be alive, what the sacred is, what the mundane is, what is God, what isn't God. And um, we spent the whole summer 
wrestling with those questions. And it, it was the most significant academic experience of my life up until that point um, because I felt so much of myself in it. I felt connected with my peers who were asking questions I was really interested in. And so I think that there's some way that every academic or written um, experience I have since then is sort of trying to model after that. What am I, what am I wrestling with and how am I going to express it in writing? I wasn't a great writer in that class. I got a, I got, <laughs> I got some feedback that I needed to grow my skills in a big way. And so I feel like in some ways I'm always trying to, to follow that feedback and and become a, a, a strong writer talking about the all things ephemeral and poetry to me makes sense as a tool to go to go and do that well it sounds like it was inspiring and sort of critically uh inspiring as well which is you know that's how we grow uh and you now are also um teaching sort of the same role as an adult with Vermont adult learning um, and helping with literacy and and all of that. So it is a pass, pass it along kind of thing then. Is that right? Absolutely. I've worked in a lot of different teaching environments. I worked at, um, in, at, in teach for America right after college teaching second grade. And then I came to Vermont and taught preschool for a little bit and I quickly learned that I maybe don't have the disposition for much younger children. Um, I really admire the work, and when it's done well, it's just so extraordinary. And so um, I found myself drawn to older students as I was going along in my career. And I worked at Centerpoint School for six years, which is a therapeutic high school based out of um, Winooski and, and South Burlington. And that that teaching experience was really much more aligned with what um, I think my goals are, which as you, as you mentioned, a kind of giving back and um, helping students connect with academics, especially when they have struggled with it in the past. That's the population of students I'm the most interested in working with. Um, and then I now moved on to Vermont Adult Learning, which I means I work with adults. I share a lot of the things that I'm passionate about. And it's also this incredibly flexible environment where um, you know, I get to design my own classes, which is, you know, creatively enormous. I know a lot of teachers um, have to balance their creativity along with a, a sort of prescribed curriculum, um, which can be tough. And so having a job where I can, I really have carte blanche in some ways to um, design my classes and, and share work with students is really really fun and I love I love working with adults it's cool I'm a, I'm a mom and I feel like I get to jam out with a lot of other moms who are making school fit in their really busy lives um, <clears throat> and it's yeah it's great well I love all of that Meg you you s- struck on something that I'm really interested in and last month I had a, uh, a guest on who dealt with adult um, education in uh, mentoring as well. And uh, we we talked about what he termed lost boys, which I think is a term out there. A lot of a lot of the schools are seeing um, young males uh, leaving school and, and, and sort of disappearing, which is not a great story. But these adult 
um, education programs or bringing them back. And, and what I heard you say was you're able to create something that maybe is, um, more attractive to them to, for their learning journey. Can, can we talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so growing up, my experience with school was, uh, pretty successful. I did well in, in school. I felt pretty comfortable there most of the time. It's some, you know, pretty average teenage social anxiety. But I found that school was a place I, I understood and felt understood. But I had family members, friends for whom that wasn't the case. And witnessing how I experienced school, how I was treated versus how um, family members of mine were treated when they didn't have the same learning style as me, when they maybe had um, <clears throat> some learning challenges, it really, this, sometimes the school, despite all the best efforts of, of teachers who are, who are wonderful, can sometimes, like, help students end up down a track where only it really works for successful students and average students, but any students who are struggling don't always get the resources that they need. And as a teacher... Um, after witnessing that experience for uh, family members of mine, I, it's, it's really hard for me to, to sort of wrap my head around. So the longer I was in education, and I've been a teacher for since I was 22, so like 15 years, um, my attention is often on those struggling students and, this, and any sense that I can't get to them that there isn't enough time, isn't enough resources, that they need more, that really pulls on my uh, on my sense of things. And so I prefer to work in environments where those struggling students are the focus. Um, for whatever reason, and there are I, I, a thousand and one reasons why students are, aren't successful in school, that, that, that 16, 17, 18 just isn't their time to shine, that they instead end up at Vermont Adult Learning and it's oftentimes one-to-one experiences, it's small group experiences, it's individualized um, learning plans. It's all of these uh, strategies that we help, you know, employ to, to help students access education in a way that they struggle to do um, in their mainstream learning experience. And, and like, you, I meet just every different kind of learner. I have students that are, you know, in their 60s or 70s, I have 17-year-olds who just left their sending school to join us. It's just this wide range of experiences, and every story that comes to the door, you're just like, yeah, of course you didn't. Of course you didn't make it through high school in the in the way that we're expected to, and and then we just get to work. And however long it takes is how long it takes. Oftentimes, my students have full-time jobs, children to care for, um, elders there supporting and caring for, um, just truly uh, these wild, diverse stories that make us all, that make up the stories of their lives. It makes us all human. And it's, but it's also why school, you know, seven to three in the afternoon, uh, standardized classes, standardized tests, like just didn't work for them. And I like, I like being the teacher that is there when it doesn't. Um, yeah, that's been the bulk of my career, and it it just uh, it makes sense to me. Yeah, you remind me years ago I did some uh, teaching at 
community college in St. Albans and had mostly adults and really wonderful um, learners. But really what I experienced was self-esteem was as much a part of the sort of challenge, you know, to, to helping them with believing in themselves. Is that, is that what you're seeing too? Or what, what are they coming in the door with that's sort of their, the harm in their soul that, that you're helping them fix? Well, I mean, that is a, a complicated question. It I, is, I and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's as broad as the human experience, right? Like they, it is, it's what they're asked to do when they're not feeling ready and, or the way that it has to be taught and it doesn't respond to how they learn, um, that they feel it's, it oftentimes, whatever the systemic issue is, they internalize that the belief that they are not good enough and that it's their fault, that they just have, it's because of my anxiety, it's because of my depression, it's because of my learning disability, it's because of the um, my, my family trauma and like, but this all makes me not a student or not a scholar or not a, not a questioner, thinker, believer, like, and, and so their identity is pulled away from school and learning because it's so difficult and um, because it's an environment that has not welcomed them. And then, but then the, the, the hope is that we, you know, at Vermont Adult Learning, not just myself, like the other teachers and administrators I work with are wonderful and they're, we're all looking at the same thing, which is, to, you know, to say to our students, not just like it's, you get to become a lifelong learner, but or it's also you are a lifelong learner. Look at the things you do. It's oftentimes about reframing my students' experience where I might say, look at how good you are at caring for your children or look at how much research you did to uh, on this job path that you're interested in. Look at all the work you did to um, to fix your fix your bike and get really into biking. So it's like oftentimes they already have areas of interest and funds of knowledge that they're coming to the table with, but they're not traditional school subjects, and so they're they don't always identify them as as um, just areas of engagement that they're already in. And so it's usually about saying like you're already doing it. How do we apply this to your school life? And how do we reframe your identity so that you know, like, you've been a learner this whole time and you've been working hard this whole time. You've been trying your best every minute of this whole thing. And so we're just here to give you credit for that and to support you on, you know, building up a few skills that we that hopefully will lead to greater freedom in your adult life. I love that. And we often don't know what we know sometimes, you know, we kind of live day to day and, and, you know, people are, as you pointed out, they're, they're building up tremendous skill sets in boots on the ground, real world living and sort of how to translate that to, you know, academia is not the best word I can use, but there's whatever that is, you know, to, so that they can feel like they can get their, degree or whatever they, they need that might help them along the way. We're talking with Meg Reynolds. She's poet, artist, and teacher. And I promise you, Meg, we will get to poetry and, and to that. Uh, 
I love, I love how your journey, um, is helping other people's journey, um, in terms of the learning. And it sounds like you went through, like everybody, sort of a process of transformation and, and how, how you learned and, and what you observed in life. Oh, Becoming yeah. part of your poetry uh, for sure. Definitely. The, well, the landing in poetry was a, um, was both a decision, but it's, it's something my friend, uh, the sort of thinker, writer, healer, Denise Casey, she talked, she and I used to talk about the choiceless choice. It's where everything around you and all the things that you've done lead you into something that feels like when you choose it, it's, it's not even a decision that you, it is, it is the natural next step. And when I was in college, I was a painter. I did painting, singing, acting, writing. I just threw myself into all kinds of different creative disciplines and was practicing them simultaneously. So sometimes <laughs> my, uh, it, my skills needed me to focus on one thing at a time. And then uh, when it came time to get out into the world as a young adult and decide what medium I was going to focus in, poetry was the only one that fit in my life. I was working crazy hours in Teach for America. They send you through graduate school and um, sort of in-district teacher training simultaneous to working full-time as a as I was working as a second grade teacher, so I was I was busy all the time and longed for creative work, um, especially to process the intense emotions I experienced, as anyone does, moving out of the college space into adult life. And um, but the only thing I couldn't set up my oil painting studio in my apartment um, and get going on that. There just weren't the, there, I didn't have the hours for it. Um, but I did have time to sneak poems into the margin of the papers I was correcting or onto post-its and stick them into the books I was reading. I could sneak poems around things and, 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 and into the interstices of my life. Meg, you were talking about, uh, you were doing life but you also had poet in your soul and you were what looking out the window and then getting inspired writing a quick poem and then putting it in the margins of a book i want to hear more about that <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i was um so time was tight i was also in the process of learning who i was as a human being but poetry was the through line of all of it. I was able to do a little bit of poetry slam work when I was out in Phoenix. I had friends doing slam poems. And uh, are you familiar with what slam poetry is? I'm not. So slam poetry is performative poetry. And so there's a, it was a tradition set up in Chicago in the 1980s. And it's really um, boisterous. You get together a bunch of poets, and they the poems themselves are intended to be spoken. It's spoken word poetry. And then it's scored on a scale of 1 to 10 by three randomly chosen members of the audience. And then whoever 
uh, kind of gets the highest score, either wins the night or does a kind of runoff with the other high scorers of the evening. And it's just a heavy audience participation, oftentimes big, thrilling imagery. Um, the, the authors are sort of um, not just great poets on the page, but also are great orators. And so, and it has deep relationship, I think, to hip hop and rap, and um, and and so there's just this this real, um, like I said, performativity to the to the medium. And so, Dinez Smith, they are a wonderful example of a of a, a spoken word poet who's kind of gone like mainstream uh, in the world of, of poetry. And uh, so I was doing that. I was, I had other, I was performing poems on a regular basis and, um, but my work was still really young. I was still developing my voice and, um, and I was also finding the time to work that out. And as I got older and kept working, found that poetry was my sort of stalwart obsession. And at a certain point in my career, I realized that I needed to reorder my life if I wanted to become the sort of poet I wanted to become, publish books and participate in conversation with poet, like poets that I deeply admire. Um, so I left my job <laughs> when I was in my early 30s and went and I traveled for a little bit. And then when I came back to Vermont, I intentionally um, reordered my life so that poetry, I was a poet first and a teacher second, um, at least for the time that I, during that period of time where I was trying to sort out how to balance those two. Um, I took a job as a cookie decorator at Clingers. I was uh, not great at it, but I had <laughs> very supportive coworkers um, and did that for a year and spent my other time running a poetry workshop called Pomeroy Poets. Um, I was running, helping run the uh, Lit Club at the Lamp Shop Poetry Series in downtown Burlington. I was taking classes. I was reading a lot. I was writing constantly. Um, and in the midst of all that, I also went to a low-residency um, MFA program at Stone Coast in Maine, um, out of the U University of Southern Maine. So I was able to effectively um, reorient my life so that poetry could take up as much space as it needed to do. And um, a lot of in town, a lot of my friends are poets. They're also uh, writers or they're teachers. <laughs> um, and so it, I'm able to engage not just in my creative work, but it's also part of my social life. It's when we all hang out, we talk shop about where we're submitting or how our manuscript is going or what's our project or we workshop poems together. Um, so it was, I was able to do it. It was, an, it was a sort of intentional process of saying, if I'm going to be serious, I'm going to be serious. And um, I made major changes in my life so that poetry could have more space. I love this, and it, I commend you. This is a very brave uh, approach to life. Uh, oftentimes, uh, people's careers and child rearing and all of that stuff, uh, sort of get in the way of, of soul, um, fulfilling, you know, gifts. I think everybody has a gift and, um, you were able to, 
transcend that to to actually uh, really make it a total immersion kind of thing in some respects. Um, and lo and behold, you you published uh, a couple of books now, and uh, the the first book, um, a comic year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I had a breakup that was really devastating. I, in all of the moves and changes in my adult life, I found myself um, mostly having short-term relationships. Uh, so this was the first long-term relationship that I was that I was in uh, as an adult. It was like a two it was two years. He was also a poet, um, and we lived together. And it was. I I thought that this was it. And when it ended, I wasn't totally prepared for that level of grief. And so I thought I need, I'm going to be working on this every day. This grief is something I will work with all the time um, anyway. So I might as well make work out of it. So I, at the time I was um, getting connected with Bianca Stone, the uh, Vermont poet, artist, um, runner of the Ruth Stone House, and she was teaching a poetry comics course that I took during during the period of that relationship. So it was a medium I was very excited about, I was really interested in. So I decided I'll just write a poetry comic about this every day for a year. Um, because I heard on a Sex in the City episode that uh, it takes half the time you're in with the relationship to get over it. So I was like, I was in it for two years. <laughs> I will write poetry comics for a year. And then see what happens. What? Who am I at the end of this? Um, what does grief look like on the ground? And and I was on the ground for good chunks of this year. But I was able to witness um, through this process a transformation. Um, I, I did get beyond it. And I was a different person. And I was particularly a different artist when it was done. Um, I think that daily... I had for years wanted a daily creative practice because many people said, many artists that I talked to, that that transforms their, their work, that they treated it like a job, they returned to it every day, and their development took a leap forward. I was like, I'm ready for that. Let's, let's do it. And, so, and that's what happened. I, I was a better artist when it was over. I was a better writer. Um, and I continued beyond the book itself uh, to, to write as, as daily a practice as I can. Um, and, but the book, the book, I was able to gather it up into about 150 comics out of the 365, 400, if you count revisions, like down to 150, and then it was published by Finishing Line Press in 2021, which was also so interesting because by the time the book came out, I was married, and I, was, uh, I had an like, 11-month-old daughter. And so it was, I was in a hugely different phase of my life by the time the book was published versus what made the book, which was heartbreak and a real lack of clarity on, like, what is going to happen to me? Where, what's, what am I doing other than poetry? I know that that will be true. I know that I will be a teacher. But, like, what else is going to happen? And um, so it was cool. It was cool to look back and be like, I've got these two babies. It's amazing. Now, you... We're in the throes of 
a, a hard breakup and you write a book called a comic year. Can you help me with that? Um, yeah, absolutely. So there are moments of the book that are genuinely funny. I humor is a huge part of my, you know, enjoying being alive, but also my, the medium that, that I work in, whether it's comics or poetry. Um, so there are funny parts. When I, comic also refers to the medium itself that I'm working in comics poetry and, um, and the way that comics function. So there's this thing called the gutter, which is the space between, uh, comic panels, um, that, that represents a jump in time. So when you look at a comic, let's say you have a glass on a table in one panel and in the next, with a cat next to it, and then on the next panel, the cat is still sitting on the table, but the glass is on the floor broken. You recognize that in that like gutter space, there's been a jump in time, and we can assume that the cat knocks the glass off of the table. That kind of leap in thinking is part of a like the way the medium functions, but also the way that my brain had to work across the course of the year, where I was working frame by frame, day by day, sometimes hour by hour, as I was grieving to some imagined future where the grief would be processed or at least be a smaller part of my life experience. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, and also there is a, there's a dark humor to it to me. Like, ha, ha, isn't this funny? (laughs) (laughs) Surviving every day. And like, (laughs) just here I am again in bed watching another episode of house. (laughs) Oh, God. And it's just sort of like if you're not laughing, you're crying, as my grandmother would say. Uh, so it's just sort of like lurching forward some days. And the appearance and absurdity of that, there was a humor to it. That, um, And maybe that's just like my sense of humor um, about myself. Yeah, so it was, all, it was all of that. It was like, how can I be like a comic where I'm moving from one panel to the next? And, to, and in the next panel, I will be changed. Yeah. And yeah. even if it's in a microscopic sort of way, and I will progress forward. Well, it certainly is cathartic. And, uh, you know, life is a country song in, in many respects. And uh, so how we progress through it. So um, does the earth, your newest book, uh, themes of love, relationship, dating, sex, pregnancy loss, motherhood. Uh, this is a long way from one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, uh, Dr. Seuss writing. Um, what, I mean, is it, was this, was there a catalyst for this or this was just, this was real life for you or how did it work? It was, it was a combination of the two. Um, so, the, um, I was writing a series of dating poems um, because that was literally what I was doing, hopping on Tinder every day and, um, and swiping down and meeting people and, and this will towards connection and this interest I had in, in meeting somebody. I was trying to uh, record for myself um, what it is I was trying to do. Did I need someone? And the truth is I probably didn't. I could build a great life just by myself, but I wanted to be a mother. That's a huge sort of driving force in my life. And so it, it, and I also loved, I had witnessed partnerships and marriages, whether it was my parents, um, close friends of mine, 
really make something gorgeous in this space between themselves and another um, that I, I wanted to give it a try. And um, so as I was working on these poems, it was dating as a creative act um, that I was engaging in. And then I met somebody uh, my, who is now my husband, Brandon, and, um, and then it's the rest of the book, really, the remaining two sections concern our relationship to parenthood and marriage together. So um, I had an unexpected pregnancy that resulted in a miscarriage, um, and all of the hormonal and emotional vicissitudes of, of that. Um, miscarriage is a, a topic I really hadn't engaged much with, and having had one, to recognize how little we engage in sort of the... The, the real difficult and visceral conversation around reproduction and the bodies who carry the babies, of, of those who carry the babies, how much we, you experience, um, I, I hadn't read enough poems about it because I had read a lot of poems about war. I had read a lot of poems about um, all kinds of violence and um, that, I, that were necessary and important and representative of the human experience, and I thought, there is, a, there is an intensity of creation of violence that's going on in my body, and I haven't seen it represented in poetry enough. And I maybe had not done my research, which is very possible, but I wanted there to be more in American letters. And so I, I wrote those poems as a way of processing um, my pregnancy loss and, but, and, and witnessing my relationship and how it held the truth of it but then also um, to contribute it, to just throw it out there in the midst of, of whatever other conversations we're having about, um, about pregnancy and miscarriage and making babies and, and all of that. Um, and then in the third section, I talk about um, pregnancy, getting pregnant again. And, um, and at the end of the book, there's, we don't talk about, like it, it doesn't, I finished the, the book while I was pregnant. And so we don't know what's going to happen, but I can say that I have a daughter now. Her name is Minnie. She is a force of nature, <laughs> um, so it's, which is its own thing that I'm exploring in my poems now as I'm like building up to the next project. Well, I love that, and um, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I have and a, I have an older son as well, and I I've just to watch the world through their eyes has been one of the most enlightening things that I've ever experienced. You've, you've written really about, um, and I'm wondering if you've gotten, since the book has been published, we find that we're only as sick as our secrets sometimes. That's what, um, some people say. And meaning that you wrote about something that was real. Are you getting feedback from people who are going, Oh my God, thank you so much for writing that. I felt so alone until I saw your words. I, I have, and it's, it's been happening through workshops as well, um, and uh, or they've been saying, like, if I had a friend who had experienced this, I would give them your poems. I also, though, try to be gentle with, with friends um, who have experienced it, where I might say something like, be, look out for section two. I know you've experienced this. If you're ready, engage those poems, but if you're not there, if you would rather just like stand in the sun for a while and, or like have a cold drink, maybe do that. Um, mm -hmm. Just because there is a lot of, um, uh, there's the Robert Frost 
um, quote that no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. I had, there were a lot of tears that went into that section, um, crying as I was writing it or crying as I finished them or cried as I, I imagined composing them. And because of that, I, I know what they, I know what they're carrying in them. Um, and so I just want people to be gentle with themselves as they engage with the work and, um, and so people do find it helpful, do find it cathartic, but um, in the doses that they can manage up, they can manage them, I suppose. And where can they find this book? Our listeners, are. Um, where can they order your book now? Oh, yes. Um, they could go to harpoonreviewbooks.com for the, my, directly to my publisher. I also have a link on my website, megreynoldspoetry.com. It's also available on Amazon. Uh, Barnes and Noble, Thrift Books, like all the kind of big uh, book distributors, you can you can find it. So just if you just type in "Does the Earth Meg Reynolds," it'll make its way to you. Um, and I encourage people though, if you uh, are able to, to check out HarpoonReviewBooks.com, just because I want to shout out my wonderful publisher out of Columbus, Ohio, Gary Lovely. He's a great great guy, um, and just anything we can do to encourage small presses, encourage. Um, the work that he's doing out there, I think it's great. So I think first place is either my website, which will link you directly to harpoonreviewbooks.com. Might be the way to do it. Awesome. And we only have um, less than two minutes. Is there is there a quick poem that you love that you can share with us? Do we have time for that? Or Yeah, absolutely. And uh, why don't I share one of my favorite poems in the collection, Discipline, um, from the second section of the book. Great. Discipline. Discipline I watch nature documentaries in the morning Rain in the Scottish Highlands Mist lifting from a keeper Cayley's croaking throat He is swollen, massive with want and fight Buoyant as a heart With vermilion stripes over his eyes He floats, the fan of his body expands and contracts Against the grasses beneath the pines Look how close you are to me still. Look on his feathers rising from his call. We've been through all this. All I wanted to teach you about my love affair with the earth I brought you to. Wonder is a discipline I wanted you to be good at. Then I was going to teach you how to speak. Your father was going to teach you how to garden fat green beans and marigolds. We were going to be careful with how you handled the cat. When I wept in the dim room during the third ultrasound, the one that revealed your death, it was in loneliness. How did you handle it so deftly, so completely? My children, that you would do something like dying without me to guide you. You, my little dark fist opening. Wow. Thank you, Meg. Um, we have about 30 seconds, but I just want to thank you for being a writer, but being a mentor to others and, and sharing your gift. It's an important part in life and, um, we, you know, we all can make a difference. So, uh, we're talking with Meg Reynolds. I hope to have you back. Uh, look forward to hearing more about the book and, uh, we'll, uh, be back after these messages. Thanks, Meg.
Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. It's Brad Furlan, your Monday host on Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV here in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Was a little bit of a foggy drive down this morning. The uh, I don't know if they have Smokey the Bear in Canada and how you say uh, only you can prevent forest fires in French, but uh, we're definitely feeling the impacts of uh, environmentally of, of smoke coming across the region. And uh, you know, I think it's a a lesson in life. The obviously we're impacted in a negative way about smoke, but. We can be a positive influence, like Meg Reynolds, who I just interviewed um, with her poetry. We can be a positive influence locally and at a distance. Uh, our our smoke of goodness can carry out beyond our region, and uh, so there's always uh, hope for goodness. My next guest is uh, my good friend, uh, somebody who I admire, uh, Thomas Chittenden. He has been uh, a... Uh, city council member in South Burlington. He's been a, uh, Vermont state senator now for a couple terms. He's in the, in the midst of it all. And, uh, he's a family member, a husband, three kids. We're going to talk about that a little bit later about how you balance, uh, all of these hats that Vermonters have. Uh, and I want to welcome you to the show this morning. Thank you, Brad. Uh, I was listening as I drove in this morning, and I've been on a radio show like this for probably five times before, but never for a full 60 minutes. And I will say I really hope the callers call in because I don't have that many interesting things to say. And uh, hard act to follow. Your last guest was really inspiring. I really enjoyed listening to Meg talk about her poetry book, and I'm going to have to pick one of those, a copy of that up. Yeah, she certainly, um, I love the whole concept of mentoring and Obviously, you you do mentoring as a father and as a colleague and and all of that. Uh, was poetry ever part of your uh, venue or? I can't say it has been, but I have a friend that actually is a poet. She went to the University of Vermont. She recently published a book, and so I, I purchased one and read it, and it was quite inspiring. So maybe it's a, a void in my life I need to fill. So I'm going to try Meg Reynolds' book this uh, this weekend. Yeah, it's uh, it's not just a book of poetry that w- that does that sells it so short. I've got a copy of it um, beside me, and it really goes deep into the depth of of emotion, which poetry does, of course. But in an, um, I, I don't know if avant-garde way is, um, the way to describe it, but it, it's so honest and frank and raw. And therefore, um, you know, if you've had the experiences that, that Meg had, you'd be able to relate to it. So, um, um, thanks Thomas for, for listening in on that segment. And I also say listeners, um, Thomas, uh, brought, um, he said there were only 11 donuts in a dozen, and I'm a little perplexed by that. These are cold hollow cider mill donuts, and usually there's 12 or 13, and there seems to be 
a satisfied smile on your face, Thomas. I, I call it an eater's dozen. Uh, a friend of mine that uh, when I ran, went on my first radio show, I want to say eight or nine years ago, he said, "Always bring the host graft or some ki- some donuts." They ask better questions, so I, I did pick up a dozen on the way here, but uh, one disappeared. Well. There's 11 donuts, and you just seem like a brilliant man to me. As uh, <laughs> Oh, wait. Did, did the donuts do that? I don't know how that works. Indeed. Um, so you're, you've been off the city council for a bit now, and have you had an opportunity to be a l- little reflective? That, that was an amazing commitment. You were there three terms on the council? It was a total of eight years. Uh, I always say about local service, it's a lot of work for no pay, and people are always mad at you. And looking back on it, I'm glad I served. Uh, I think it's important for a service in the community, for those that care, to to have the right reasons to put themselves forward. Uh, I I served because some people reached out and said we need some uh, we need individuals to uh, to perform this function. I didn't have a cause celebra. I didn't have a, a sole issue that drove me to run. So I really just saw it as as service to my community, somebody to bring the tough decisions forward that you don't want an administrator hired by the city to decide, but instead want representatives to evaluate the pros and cons of the argument and to uh, to come up with a solution and hopefully bring as many people along board as possible. I learned a lot in that role. So it was um, during my entire eight years, I served with a total of nine different counselors. I was always the youngest, and uh, I, I think that reflected in how I, I think I got better and not worse over the eight years. I just I learned more about how municipal government works, how uh, collaboration works, how, how to guide a, a group of five volunteers towards a better decision. So I, I'd say it was a, a reflection point and an experience that uh, has made me a better person in both my career as well as in my family life and also uh, really positioned me for hopefully being more uh, pos- positive and powerful or useful influence in the state house. And do people still call you up and think that you're on the council and want you to fix things? So I always say a good government is a quiet government, and it's good when people don't know who's on your local select board or city council because that means things are going well and uh, you're not necessarily very concerned. And to that point, I'll say I often talk to residents that are focused on their lives. They're focused on raising their kids, their careers, their jobs, and they sometimes don't quite know the difference between a city councilor, a representative, a senator, or some other state function government or an administrator. So absolutely. And you know what? I still represent them. South Burlington's part of my Senate district, so I welcome constituents to reach out for any and any all issues, and I'm happy to uh, to guide them in the right place or to advocate for policy changes that might fall within the jurisdiction of some of the scope of perspective that I have in the State House. So there are some who would say uh, Chittenden County is is a little bit different than other parts of Vermont. It's the growth center. It's the population base. It's the economic giant, all of those things. South Burlington, certainly, you know, a large part of that. How does that, um, I mean, what did you experience in terms of being in, in local government about how the community image is, you know, pe- what people want versus what something has become? And, and I'll, I'll backstory that a little bit. I remember driving past, um, Chittenden Cider Mill when I was a little kid and I remember going to old farm road to visit friends and there was nothing. There were no homes. There was farm, there was open land. And yet now it's your metropolis of sorts. So what, what's kind of the, I mean, obviously 
I don't know. Where where can we take that conversation? While on the city council for eight years, I'll say one of the major issues was the uh, degree of growth to the change that South Burlington was exhibiting or to experiencing. And that's really been happening prior to my time. It goes back to the – you can go trace it, I think, until the late 80s. Uh, when you look at the population graphs, uh, was it really a, an effect of Burlington growing? Burlington has built out, and uh, the next closest area that's just south of them is South Burlington. So we were getting additional housing pressures, additional development pressures. And uh, what I would say to your point is everybody um, across that I've met always has skepticism with regards to change. If something is going to change, there's always questions being raised, because what is it now and compared to how it will be, there is decisions that can be made that are much uh, more thoughtful, more much more less expensive and important to have before the change occurs. And so what I would say in South Burlington, as I've reflected in my last eight years and currently, there's a bit of growth fatigue. There is a fair number of individuals that remember exactly as you do what Dorset Street used to look like and what Spear Street used to look like. And they were uh, they were accepting that we're just south of, of Burlington and that we do need to embrace our geographical position next to the largest city in the state uh, and allow for the housing that we need in that area. But I think the harder and faster you push on things, the more friction you create. And so, if anything, what it, we're doing is just managing smart, thoughtful development that occurs uh, that hopefully occurs in the right places where we want it over a period of time that the communities can adopt, uh, can accept. And so that's where a lot of the friction has been. I think that it's gotten to a better place. I've always said when I was on council that South Burlington has some of the best planning in the state. Um, as much as Wilson Road and Shelburne Road sometimes get grief for being very car-centric, they were uh, they were great back in the day, and they still are. That's my town and my community. I love Al's French Fries and Zachary's, and so I don't look at that street as sprawl and bad development. I just look at it as my town. Uh, and But as uh, Market Street comes in and Garden Street, we're looking to – update, modernize, and refresh uh, those parts of our city. Well, it's I, I'm with you on that. The I raised my children as I was raised on uh, Bove's restaurant um, going – I was two years old when I first started going to Bove's from like grandparents and parents and brought my children in, you know, early age. And, and now without – Boves in Burlington, uh, Al's French fries is our go-to and it's a familiar and it, it, it just has something that we love and, um, we, we do it pretty regularly. It's our go-to place on Sunday afternoons. We're talking this morning with, uh, Senator Thomas Chittenden. We were talking a little bit first about your, your local representation and, and, You've also, you've been serving as a senator for a couple terms. Recently, you had a veto session. Do you, can you update us a little bit about how that, how that went? Sure. The biggest surprise for the veto session was how we uh, were able to do it in one day. Uh, prior to the, that uh, coming or that happening last Tuesday, uh, we were prepped the week prior and the week and a half prior that for all we knew, we'd be actually meeting this week as well. Uh, so there was a lot up in the air, uh, especially regarding the um, currently motel voucher program where uh, those experiencing homelessness have been housed during the pandemic, the 2,000, uh, just shy of 2,000 Vermonters that were still are still in the program. 
and how to handle it. Uh, I want to credit Senator Baruth, Speaker Kruinski, and Governor Scott for coming up with, and also I hear um, uh, Senator Kitchell was also very instrumental in coming up with a solution that makes a lot of sense. It uh, aligns our previous previous policies regarding the motel voucher program from before the pandemic, uh, aligned with resources that were already available through, I want to say, the Vermont Housing Conservation Board. So we were able to leverage existing funds to bridge to a period of time when additional resources will be available during the cold climate months. So the solution that uh, was worked on behind the scenes leading into the veto session led for a very efficient veto session. That being the case, happy to go run down the seven vetoes we considered. Okay. So I believe Governor Scott uh, vetoed eight bills this year. One veto was actually addressed during the session. That's S5. Happy to double back on that. I think we spoke a little bit about that the last time I was on a couple of months ago. The seven that were before us this time were vetoed since we adjourned in mid-May. There were four that I, uh, I'm sorry, four that I, I didn't agree with the governor, and three that I did. So the four that I did agree with the uh, uh, that I did not agree with the governor. One was the budget, and I understand the governor's biggest issues were the DMV fees as well as the new social services program we re- we um, funded through a payroll tax, which is to subsidize uh, child care services in the, in the state of Vermont. Regarding the DMV fees, um, I couldn't agree with the governor only because I sort of serve on the Transportation Committee in the Senate, and if you look at our gas tax revenues, they are declining, and we have a shortfall of resources to pave, pave and paint our roads. So our roads still need to be maintained, but with an increasing number of hybrid and electric vehicles, they're not paying the gas taxes that are generally supporting those services. So we are coming up with a shortfall. And in the governor's proposed budget, it had a few uh, reallocations from the general fund and also a little bit from the capital bill to shore up the shortfalls in the transportation fund. But uh, since Governor Scott took office a little more than six years ago, he hadn't raised the DMV fees, not even gradually. And in these times of inflation and with six years lagging, I supported increasing the fees. Do I think we should have raised them as much as we did? I I don't. I I agree with where we landed and how it was mathematically calculated, looking at what they would have been given the cost and increase in wages as well as other inflationary considerations. So the the number was very um, defensibly come up with. Uh, But it is uh, something that I get the governor wouldn't necessarily support. I see it as a way, a rational assessment to pay for the the services to provide safe roadways uh, to increase the DMV fees, which raise an additional $20 million to the base budget. Let me just keep going, Brad. Sure. So similarly, uh, the other two, uh, the other bill that he did veto, which tied into the budget, was child care. Uh, as I ran for office two years ago and during the pandemic, I spoke to um, constituents, heard from constituents, heard from businesses, heard from employers, and overwhelmingly, resoundingly, we need to do something to make child care more avail- available, more affordable, more accessible, and more more. Um, Distributed throughout the community, so childcare was a uh, was a major issue even before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, it revealed how important, how fundamental childcare is to our economy. When hospitals couldn't get nurses to come in because there was nobody to watch their kids, that was a major concern. When police officers couldn't serve because they didn't have anybody to watch their young kids, their zero to four year olds, it just revealed how critical it is to attract safe, uh, to to sustain and mandate and to provide. Um, and to have providers provide those safe environments for child care. So this uh, budget and the child care bill does propose a new tax for the great state of Vermont, a payroll tax of 0.44%, uh, of which point, uh, 25% of that, or 0.11% of everybody's 
paycheck will come from them, and then the three-quarters of that 0.44% will come from the employers. Any economist will say it's ultimately all coming from the employee, because if you tax the employer with that 33.33%, not 33%, but 0.33%, it's ultimately going to affect their ability to offer additional benefits, pay increases, and so on. So there have been some similar uh, taxes raised for uh, payroll taxes are not uncommon. They exist in other states. This will be a first one for the state of Vermont that, uh, that will hit the employer, if I recall correctly, and the employee. We do have some employer taxes for unemployment insurance and otherwise. And it is a tax increase. It's going to raise about $110 million. What I heard when I was running is that child care is important. And I heard major employers, employers of growing in industries, growing companies in the state of Vermont saying we need to address this, and they're ready to accept that it's going to cost us money. And it, this is going to help um, primarily uh, low-income individuals and individuals in the middle class that are just trying to find child care. It's going to help pay better wages to attract more child care providers, and hopefully we'll address this problem to make it so that our zero- to four-year-olds have safe, clean, accessible and uh, affordable areas for them to to go to while their parents are at work. Want me to keep going, Brad? I just want to – we're talking with Senator Thomas Chittenden uh, or the veto session recently. If you want to join the call, 802-244-1777. Yeah, keep going with sort of – there were eight, eight, eight vetoed bills, yeah. Seven that we considered in the veto session. So the next one was similar to the DMV fills, uh, B- DMV fees that were in the budget. There was a separate bill on, a, on administrative organizational fees. So for um, counselors, for medical health professionals that have to certify with the state organizations, there's small fees that they register with the Secretary of State. Those, a lot of them hadn't been updated in 10, 20 years. And so a, that we brought them all up to speed. So it's not just the DMV fees, uh, but I believe that raised an additional 3.5 million to the base funding. So similarly, the governor just doesn't support fee increases at this time. I get his rationale. As I look at the inflationary times we're in and needing to provide services that the people of the state of Vermont are asking for, these seemed reasonable, rational assessments to uh, to increase. The next one was the Burlington Charter change. Um, so I'm going to segue this and connect it with an, the, the one of the bills that I didn't support, or I did agree with the governor and I didn't vote to override. I voted with the governor to sustain. But on the Burlington charter change, this is what Willis, sorry, Winooski and Montpelier already did. This will, uh, they allow for all citizens, including uh, those here legally with green cards, but not U.S. citizens, to allow them to vote in local elections, just local elections. And so Montpelier had passed that. Will Anuski had passed it, and we actually, uh, I was serving last year when we when we approved it. It was challenged. The Supreme Court um, agreed that it is illegal at the local level in municipal elections for for non non U.S. citizens, but all citizens that are here legally to be able to vote in those elections. And so, similarly, since I supported it in Winooski for Winooski and Montpelier, the voters of Burlington wanted to allow. Their residents that are there paying sales taxes, paying gas taxes, paying income taxes to be able to vote for their, their, their city councilors or select board members, I supported that. That segues to the three bills that I agreed with the governor on. Um, one of them, I was in the minority, and they did override the veto. It has to do with the Brattleboro charter change, allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to vote. So that that will be the first place, uh, just in local elections, similar to the Burlington Charter. This is only for local municipal elections, not including the school board. So in Brattleboro, they passed this, I want to say, a few years ago by wide margins, and I just couldn't support it. I can't reconcile the fact that a 16- and 17-year-old can't, um, can't purchase alcohol, can't 
open a bank account, can't start a credit card, can't um, purchase a variety of materials, and has additional restrictions. And that same day that we passed this bill, we passed a, a change to our driving laws, allowing, making it clear 16- and 17-year-olds aren't even allowed to have a phone on their dash because uh, it's just even more of a distraction and they're not quite used to it. So we have policy carve-outs recognizing 16- and 17-year-olds haven't seen enough of the world to really be aware of the impacts of some of their decisions, and so we put parameters and guidelines. For that reason, I just couldn't get over the fact that this would allow 16- and 17-year-olds not only to vote, but also to serve in elected office. In my eight years on the South Burlington City Council, I saw things in executive session and had to deal with um, anonymous death threats, the social media anger that comes at you when you have to vote on uh, contentious issues, and I just don't think a 16- or 17-year-old is ready to reconcile and to compartmentalize. They just haven't seen enough of the world to know what those what those really truly mean, and that's why I didn't support it. But there were 20 senators that did, and so now it'll be law, and Brattleboro will have 16- and 17-year-olds vote in their next town meeting day. Wow, that certainly will be a model that we'll have to keep an eye on. We're talking with Senator Thomas Chittenden, uh, former now, uh, city councilor from South Burlington, lecturer at UVM, uh, dad, husband, and, uh, donut bringer to, uh, Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, Senator, we, we left off a little bit with Brattleboro, uh, 16 and 17 year olds voting and a little bit more on that. Uh, I just also want to say I have a small farm as well, and we just had our first little uh, set of bunnies. So I was going to ask you, Brad, if you want a bunny, we need we have we need to find a home for a few of them. So. Uh, you're breaking up. I can't hear you, <laughs> Senator. Uh. So on the Brattleboro change, uh, this is my my concern that I, I want I think voters should be aware of. Similar to the Burlington Charter change allowing all citizens, which which I agree with, um, that was led by Montpelier and Winooski, and then Burlington, and I expect others and. Either you agree or disagree, uh, just once a precedent has been established, you often see that being propped up as an example as to why we should do it elsewhere. My concern is that with the Brattleboro charter change, there's going to be other communities saying, well, Brattleboro did it, so let's do it too. I I really think we need to pause and reflect and consider how a 16- and 17-year-old – I have three kids of around this age – and if one of them was elected to office, even – and my kids are great. They've got their act together. They're doing the right things. They're studying in school. And if, if they get that perfect student, that, that student that really does want to serve their community and gets elected to office, they would um, – if they make that dumb kid decision on a Friday night, right now is not an elected official – the police and the press would not disclose the information about their stupid indiscretion, their youthful indiscretion. They would not reveal the name. They wouldn't even put photos out there because the kids are young and we want kids to be kids and we, we recognize they're going to make dumb decisions. But if that 16- or 17-year-old was elected to the select board of Brattleboro, they would sacrifice that that shield, that protection, because the public has a right to know what their elected officials do. And so I, I just really hope before any other communities start going down this path, wanting 16- and 17-year-olds to have the right to serve and vote, that we think about the longer-term implications that this could have on 16- and 17-year-olds getting into those environments, and whether or not they really truly have seen enough of the world to make the really important decisions overseeing police departments, fire departments, large budgets, and so on. But 
that's neither here nor there. Um, the two other bills happy to talk about was S6, and this is where I agreed with the governor. The next two bills we did not vote on, um, so instead they were withdrawn and put back to committee. So many would, that are inside the state house would, would say that's likely because there weren't enough votes to override the veto. So uh, there were enough senators that agreed with the governor that the, uh, the, the vote was not taken. Uh, so one is S6, uh, having, having to do with... Uh, Police officers and how they, what they can and can't say to individuals in, under the age of 22. Uh, I hear from the conversations as well as Vermont Digger about the read method. Uh, the read method is a police technique that is used where they tell a story about a crime and then they look during the interview to have the the suspect uh, fill in the gaps as to what occurred. And some uh, advocates for the S6, I have heard say, cops shouldn't lie to kids. And so that's their 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 rallying cry around why S6 should be passed. The counterpoints uh, from the law enforcement community, the governor, as well as reasonable individuals are that cops shouldn't lie to people anytime, and they, they don't. I would hate to think a cop out there is lying. This is not lying. This is them using intelligent argument to extract useful information about hideous crimes. And so why I, uh, I'm glad that it's going back to committee is we have time. This is a biennium. The one year has occurred, and there's a whole other year. If this was next spring, then that's our bite at the apple. And after next spring, that's the end of the biennium and everything needs to get reset. But now we have time. Uh, we can consider the perspectives of the governor, the threshold of 22, the language concerns that were in there that were raised by the law enforcement community. And I think we can get the bill to a better place. And that's what I think we should be doing as a legislature. So I'm glad that's going back to committee. And I have full confidence that uh, Senator Sears and his full committee is going to find this to be a great to get it to a better place for reconsideration this coming January. The last bill uh, is legislative pay. So I, I too, um, I, I was in the press as well being against this bill, so I, I did not support the bill in its current form. I do support increasing the pay for legislators when they're in session. Legislators have to put their life on, on hold. We do not get paid a lot. A lot of people think this is like a full-time job with benefits. It is not. This is a citizen legislature. It's part-time. They pay us for putting about three to four months of our life on hold, meaning we can't do anything else. From Tuesday through Friday, from 8 a.m. until 6 p.m., there are oblig obligatory meetings that we have to attend to serve this function, which means you can barely hold another job, and many do, myself included, but it is a severe challenge. For those entire four months, they pay us about ten, a little over $10,000, I think up to $13,000. Then there's these additional benefits. They give us $69 a day for food, and they also pay for mileage based on where you live, and then they will if you live far enough away, they will pay for a hotel room. You put the whole bundle together, um, but that is there's taxes on those additional benefits. It can be about $20,000 for about four months of your life. That's the current pay. I support increasing that modestly. It's been modestly adjusted over time for the time we're in session. And I'm also, I, I could be convinced otherwise, I'm not against allowing health insurance as long as the legislature has to pay their fair share, like uh, employers do, to have legislators have access to the state health care. Uh, I think that is a, a reasonable thing to do with how challenging it is to provide health care in this day and age. What I do not support and what I still don't support and why I just couldn't vote for this bill, and I made this clear last March when it came to the floor, it also has this adjournment pay piece in there, which would effectively pay throughout the year um, any legislature that chooses to put in for it, but every legislator will choose to put in for it. Just like with the $69 a day, we don't have to put that in for food, but there is peer pressure, and again, they don't pay us enough. So we all put in for the $69 a day because it is expensive and it's costly to have to um, put your life on hold and to grab food on the go wherever you are. 
The adjournment pay would allow all legislators throughout the year put in for eight hours a week, effectively $250 a week or $1,000 a month throughout the year. Uh, in the our words of the advocates, to be able to uh, respond to emails, attend community events, and to provide the constituent services that absolutely happen. I, I couldn't support that. Uh, I see this as not a job but as service, and I see my constituents and the voters of Vermont seeing it the same way. I'm not a full-time politician. We have a citizen legislature in the small state of Vermont, the great state of Vermont, and I, I think that's what the people want, and that's that's what I'm trying to reflect. To have adjournment pay, to have pay throughout the entire year, it moves us towards a full-time legislature, which I just don't think the brave little state of Vermont has the uh, has the demand for or the budget for. So I don't support the adjournment pay. I think that leads us down the wrong path, and I, I shouldn't get paid to send emails. I see that as service. And city councilors, they get paid nothing. So I think legislators need to reflect that there's a lot of select board members and school board members that get paid absolutely nothing to do as much work, if not more, at a much more local uh, level. So those are the seven bills. Happy to take questions or comments. Yeah, we're talking with Senator Thomas Chittenden, uh, WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your host, Brad Furlan. The uh, governor uh, has a really high approval rating. Seventy percent or more of Vermonters vote for him or, or they like him for, you know, so many reasons. He brought us through COVID in such a positive way. He and Dr. Levine were, you know, regulars uh, really doing almost the uh, the FDR uh, fireside chat kind of thing that, you know, getting us through. And yet, um, on the other hand, there's this uh, super majority now in the legislature, which can override um, his wisdom on, on these things. It's, it's a weird dichotomy. How do, how do you explain that kind of thing? I think Phil Scott is a good governor. I think he's a great governor. I think he's done well. And I, I, I think what Vermonters like about Phil Scott is that he is um – He's not trying to change Vermont with his service. He's trying to serve Vermont with his service. He, he sees this as a, as a role to bring sides together, bring find consensus to maintain this thing we call democracy and civil society. So I, I see that in his approach. He didn't run for a specific reason or for personal gain, for personal ego. I, I see him as just a as a selfless servant that wants to do well by the state he grew up in. And so I, that's where I think the voters like him. That's not to say some of his opponents have have uh, been the opposite of that. I just think that's been where he's positioned himself. So I, I respect his approach to government, uh, and I disagree with him, but I, I, I respect and appreciate all of his service. I disagree with him at times, not all the times, but we all disagree with each other. And what, sure. What makes for an effective politician or public servant is to be able to disagree with somebody without being disagreeable. And so I, I, I hope that he finds uh, ways to advocate for his point of view in the legislature this coming year uh, to get more of his uh, perspective into the mix uh, while we're crafting the legislation. We're talking this morning with Senator Chittenden. The pay raise was uh, an issue uh, that that went back to committee and – I, I think I love your concept of citizen legislature. We've, we've had that, uh, you know, forever and ever. We're, we're a republic, meaning we elect people and, and then they get to go and, and make decisions for us. We don't have 700 or 600,000 people in the state house, but we do have people representing them. 
And you're a lecturer at UVM. You're a dad. You're a husband. Um, you're on, you were on the council and you became a state senator. It's a huge balancing act. So the, the pay raise for four months, can you tell us a little bit? I mean, you have an employer who lets you out for a bit, but that's not always probably the case. Right. Uh, so I would only have run, I only ran for this position because people before me had blazed the trail at my employer, my full-time employer that I, um, that is how I feed the kids and clothe and roof them, shelter them, is the University of Vermont. And so the pro tem, Phil Baruth, is also a uh, faculty member at the University of Vermont. He is a star-bellied snitch, so he has tenure. I do not. I am a <laughs> non-star-bellied snitch. Um, but we, uh, but another representative, Ann Pugh, she served for 20 years. She was actually my representative. She was very comparable in job function to mine. She, too, was a lecturer, so she had blazed the trail. And UVM is a great place to work. I, I love the University of Vermont uh, for what it does for the state and how it treats its employees. Uh, with my lecturing, I'm able to, and this is pretty common, uh, shift and adjust your course load. So uh, my falls have been he- very heavy. Uh, so I spend a lot more time teaching in the falls with a lot more time grading, a lot more time delivering. And, and during the legislature, we do meet Tuesday through Friday. So it gives all legislators the Monday as well as the weekends and then also the evenings um, to to perf- to do their other jobs. And so what I have done two out of the three years that I've been in the legislature, I teach all day Mondays and then Wednesday nights. And so, and then I grade on the weekends. And so it's, it's been a way to make things work. But this is the, the point I also, I'm glad you double back on the legislative pay. The adjournment pay for me, the big difference between that and getting compensated during the session is the adjournment pay is on my terms. It would be if it was approved, meaning I would get to choose when, how, and if I engaged with constituent services. I could do it if I so choose on Sunday mornings, which is when I usually clean up my inbox. And so that's different than compensating me for Tuesday through Friday, January through May, when I have to be a certain place to be for me. That's when I think, yes, we need, and that's in our Constitution, that we need to compensate legislators for those obligations. But you see, the the difference for me is the obligation. So to serve in this role, you are obligated to be in the building during those times. We should compensate fairly something, not a lot, nothing excessive, but enough so that people don't have to starve to serve their communities. But the adjournment pay for me is a a bridge too far uh, that it just would allow individuals to get paid to do emails and constituencies, which is what you sign up for. When you throw your hat in the ring to serve in this arena, you are saying you will attend the local community event. You will go on radio shows and talk about the legislature. You will attend. I did two meetings yesterday in my, my community. So you go to those. You don't get paid for it. That's just what you're signing up for. Yeah. Um, and so during the session, it it kind of means, I mean, you probably have uh, school buses in South Burlington, but if you're a legislator who has children and they need to get to school, you may be headed to Montpelier long before you can uh, drop them off at the door. Uh, you're coming back. You said you often serve until 6 if you're driving an hour home. Um, you're maybe missing dinner. There, there's definitely some hardships here. How, how do you, how do you sort of balance that with your family? You're, you're a great dad. I know that. I, I know that your kids have had every variety of creamy known to, to childhood, which I advocate for, of course, and, uh, Al's French fries and all that stuff. Uh, they must be proud of you, but do they feel like, uh, worse dad sometimes? 
I, I wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for my, my loving wife and my three kids. So they, they enabled me for this, uh, and uh, they were the wind at my backs in every campaign. They were the ones holding the signs on the uh, the side of the street with me. And uh, my two oldest uh, were actually my campaign managers uh, in 2022. So I, I keep brought my life to a place uh, where I felt like my employer could support uh, allowing alternative configurations uh, for my workload. And also, uh, you can take a leave of absence. Uh, so uh, employers so it's within the state regulations um, can give a leave of absence to employees while they're serving in the legislature. But it is a challenge. It is a chore. It is difficult. My youngest is still in elementary school, so uh, I didn't put him on the bus. Uh, luckily, I, my oldest was able to, as well as my my lovely wife um, was able to also put him on the bus. But those are sacrifices you make. But I didn't run for this office to get paid for those sacrifices. I, I ran for this office because I care about the state and the community that I live in. And I, I want to see policies enacted that allow for more opportunities for those same three kids to be able to stay here, live here, work here, and thrive here. So I, I didn't run to get paid for those sacrifices. I knew wide, eyes wide open what those sacrifices would entail, and I had my life in a place where I, I could commit to it. And we talked about some of the trends and you know who who set the precedent, Ann Pugh and and others, uh, Phil Baruth. I think you said um, I don't want to omit um, Jim Condos, who was uh, South Burlington City Councilor. And then served in the legislature and, and did the same kind of balancing act that you did. And, uh, and then of course, uh, Secretary of State for a long, long time. So a lot of public service there. Uh, I'm a Jim Condos Democrat. He's a great guy. And uh, I've so far followed a pretty similar path. So he was on the South Burlington City Council through the 90s and he served with my Uncle Bob. And then uh, he became a state senator for Chittenden County. And so uh, I'm not planning to run for secretary of state, so I think that's where we're going to depart. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I like Jim. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and his daughter here lives in uh, South Burlington, and my kids, uh, my youngest goes to school with her daughter. Uh, yeah, her daughter. Yeah, so over the years I became um, friends with uh, former Governor Salmon. He was elected in 1972. He campaigned for two months and, and won. He had been in the House, and uh, he uh, jumped in and, and became governor. And he often would say to me that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Democrats and Republicans in Vermont would gather together their collective thinking in the best interest of constituents. Does that still happen, or are we, are we more – partisan now or is there or is it just different goals and and we look at it differently when the system's working it happens uh, i do see that happen in vermont and i think that has to do with balanced committees where you have different points of view around the table for those that aren't familiar with the legislature, a lot of the work happens in committee. The votes happen on the floor, and those are usually when the press tune in. But the the grind, the sausage making, as they call it, is when you're sitting around a table for four hours, five hours a day, talking about really nuanced, specific subject matter with other people of an opposite party, an opposite point of view, an opposite representation from another part of the state. I'll bring that perspective around the table to craft policy that everybody can agree to. And I do see that happen more often, a majority, a, a huge majority of the time. But when it doesn't happen, that's usually when the press covers things. Um, I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to – but I could cite some bills that have made it out of committee. And I'll, uh, maybe I'll reference um, 
there was coverage about S5 and how the Senate Committee of Natural Resources doesn't have a single Republican on it. It's all Democrats. And so many would argue, and I, I actually kind of agree, and I don't fault anybody. I know how the committee got composed the way it was, and it's partly because there just aren't that many Republicans. There are seven Republicans out of 30, and so there just was no – there weren't enough Republicans to go around. And so that's why the committee was like that. But I would argue, and I think the point was made, that when you have a couple of other individuals from the uh, opposing um, the good friends in the opposition, having their, their interests, their uh, perspective considered, it gets the bill to a better place before it comes to the floor. I don't know if that answers your question, Brad. Yeah, well, we always hope for for collective thinking. We have about a minute left. Uh, this is WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. We've been talking with uh, Senator uh, Thomas Chittenden, South Burlington. Uh, you are also, in the last 30 seconds, you're a connoisseur of creamies. You've traveled everywhere. What's the favorite flavor of uh, the senator and his family? Okay. So it's a loaded question, Brad, uh, but it's got to be a maple creamy. And if you're looking for the best maple creamy, I have to plug Palmer's uh, up in Jericho. They have the purest maple, and the maple sprinkles makes it great. But if you're looking for the best Sunday afternoon creamy, you got to go with Al's. If you're looking for the best view, you got Bay, Bay Street Market down in Burlington. If you want variety, go to Dukes and Milton. Uh, I'm missing a, a bunch of them, but I have it on my Facebook page, the best creamies in the state, so make sure you check it out. They're all good, but they have different characteristics. Awesome. Creamies are out there. At 1 o'clock, uh, Charlie Papillo travels with Charlie, my good friend. Uh, he has Mike Smith on, who's no stranger to this station. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. It's Brad Furland, Vermont Viewpoint.